Now hear God's word from Matthew chapter 4 as we continue our study in the gospel according to Matthew. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have delivered it to us, how we read about our, our Lord's uh, perfect life, how he uh, defeated Satan at every turn, how he defied him and, and beat him down under his feet. And we pray that today you would deliver us from distraction, that you would deliver us from the lies and the temptations and the wiles of the devil, and that you would set our feet on solid ground, that we would follow this example that we see our Lord Jesus give us in this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's happened more times than you can count. You get a perfect, new, shiny thing, and almost immediately it is scratched, it is stained, it is cracked, it is dented. That new phone is only hours old. You have just peeled off that little cellophane sticker thing that's over the cover. You know what I'm talking about. Isn't it just so satisfying to pull that thing back and have your new phone? It's only, it's only hours old before the first time you drop it. You park your new car at the grocery store and somebody just carelessly turns loose of their grocery cart and leaves it sailing off towards your quarter panel and you come out and you see this grocery cart resting against your new car. Your new furniture and your new carpet, if you have children, they have hours tops. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. Your carpet has hours before the first spill or spot or stain Pizza falls pepperoni side down. It never falls this way. It always falls pepperoni side down on the, new, on the new stuff. And so our full pleasure in this new thing is diminished almost immediately. And then we live with the damage. We live with the dent or the scratch or the stain. And that damage is an ever-present reminder that in this creation, everything is just falling apart around us all the time. Even creation itself wasn't very old before it was disfigured. God created the world, and he was very happy with it. He was pleased with what he created. He created man and woman in perfection and put them into a perfect place. And shortly thereafter, the serpent invaded it. He tempted the man and the woman to corrupt it, to defile it, to profane it. The shiny, perfect new world was barely out of the box before it was dropped and cracked and broken. The full enjoyment and the peace had gone out from it. Instead of happiness and joy, there is between Adam and Eve in the creation, there's heartbreak, 
Their relationships are fouled up. There's accusations. There's exile. And this tends to be the pattern throughout history that whenever God establishes his people in a new arrangement, when he gives them a new creation, there's some failure right away, something there ready to mess it up. After the flood, Noah is resting in his tent when his son Ham does something obnoxious and some kind of nonsense to embarrass Noah and to shame him. Abraham receives the covenant promises and immediately he messes up with Hagar. God brings Israel out of Egypt and they're at the base of Mount Sinai where he's giving them his law and they cast a golden calf and they turn their hearts toward idolatry. God gives the victory at Jericho and a man named Achan steals from the treasure, from the bounty that belongs to God. David is established as king, uh, puts a fire in his fireplace, he puts his feet up, he's established as the ruler of God's people and then immediately he sins with Bathsheba and kills her husband. Over and over and over and over, we respond to the overwhelming mercies and blessings of God by taking a sledgehammer to these incredible things that he's given us. It's like we can't have nice things because we don't want them. We want to destroy them. Whenever we have a new creation, we have a temptation and a fall, and we need to be rescued immediately. Now, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we've read about a new creation. The story of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is a new genesis. In fact, that's how Matthew begins the gospel. The first words of the gospel in Greek are the book of Genesis. That's what it says in chapter one, verse one, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is a new creation with a new Adam. And, uh, and when this new Adam grows into adulthood, the Spirit hovers over him at the waters of baptism, the way the Spirit hovered over the deep at the first creation. The Spirit hovered over those waters. The voice, uh, the voice of the Father speaks to Jesus. He speaks his good pleasure to Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, just as the Father spoke his good pleasure at creation. This is good. This is good. This is very good. So, so we have a new creation. All the signs are there. What's next? What are we looking for? Well, where's the snake? Where's the serpent? Where is it coming? What's going to come to mess everything up? How are we going to sin this time? Well, it turns out that this time is significantly different because this time it's not Adam who's standing up for us. It's not Noah. It's not Moses or Aaron. It's not Abraham or David or Joshua. Now we have a new Adam. Jesus himself, who succeeds where everyone else has failed. And he succeeds in such a way that his victory over Satan and his triumph over Satan's lies are our victory over Satan and his lies. We, in Jesus, have the spiritual authority and strength now to withstand temptation in Christ, to resist the devil, and to know that Satan will flee in the very same way he fled from Jesus. Well, let's watch how this all unfolds. Jesus, as we read last week, has just been baptized by John in the Jordan River. And from that point, Jesus begins his public ministry. Being filled with the Spirit, Jesus goes out to war. And that's another pattern we see throughout the scriptures, that when someone's ordained, when someone's anointed, they have a battle. 
to go to right away. Joshua receives the transfer of leadership from Moses. He goes into the land and begins the conquest. Elijah anoints Elisha. Elisha crosses the river and he goes into the land and he begins his fight against the idolaters. David is anointed and then immediately he goes and fights Goliath. So Jesus has just been anointed. He's just been ordained. He's just been baptized. And the spirit who anointed Jesus now leads him out to battle into the wilderness. The wilderness is the arena of his fight. Uh, when you think wilderness, some of you may be thinking, well, this is a jungle or a forest, or, or maybe it was some kind of prairie. Well, the wilderness that Jesus goes to very likely, and it makes a whole lot of sense, must be the very same wilderness that Elijah went to the same wilderness that the children of Israel sojourned in for 40 years, it's the Sinai Peninsula, which is a barren, arid, rocky desert place. There's no life there. Nothing can survive there. And you can get lost there and no one will ever find you. That's the wilderness that he goes into. So the spirit drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The temptation was the whole purpose for his going out to the wilderness. It's not that he went out to the wilderness for some other reason and the devil just happened to show up. The temptation was the point of the Spirit's direction. Read it again, verse one, chapter four. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's why the Spirit led him there. As we work through Matthew's gospel, we're gonna see that throughout his entire life, Jesus is going to go around deliberately reenacting important scenes from Israel's history. But Jesus is gonna go through all these things as the faithful son. He is going to be the son who pleases and obeys the father and reverses all of Israel's failures. So Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the spirit, just as the spirit led Israel out into the wilderness. The spirit guided Israel by the pillar of fire and by the cloud of smoke out into the wilderness. The same spirit now leads Jesus out there. Jesus is there for 40 days and 40 nights fasting as Israel was out there for 40 years. But there's enough weight there for you to say, okay, yeah, I see what he's doing. He's He's imitating Israel's sojourn in the wilderness. But while Jesus is out there, he doesn't turn to idols. He doesn't complain about bread or, or not having enough meat. He doesn't lust after the riches of Egypt or the riches of the nations. He doesn't complain and he doesn't follow Satan or worship Satan. He resists and he devise, defies the devil at each point where Israel formerly capitulated. He also refuses to give in to the very same uh, 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 temptation that Adam gave in to at, in the garden. Jesus refuses the offering of forbidden fruit. He refuses the easy way. He refuses to take shortcuts to glory all along the way. Jesus doesn't reach out to seize what's not his the way that Adam and Eve reached out to seize what was not theirs. Jesus uh, does not reach out to seize things that can only be won through the hard route of the cross. And so Jesus is the first of his kind. He's this new man. The world's never seen anybody like this before. He doesn't bow down to Satan. He rebukes him. Now, when Jesus fasts um, in the wilderness, he fasts for 40 days. You may have tried to fast for one day before, and you know how difficult that is, how 
awful you feel, how draining it is to fast. To miss a meal is bad. To miss three is really bad. If you're sick, you maybe don't eat for several days, and, and it's absolutely miserable if you, if you have not eaten for a while. A 40-day fast seems like the extreme limit of what a human can withstand, but it's not the only 40-day fast in the Bible. Moses likewise fasted for 40 days at the top of Mount Sinai before bringing the law down to the people. We read back in the fall, we were studying the life of Elijah, and Elijah fasted for 40 days while he was headed back up to Mount Sinai to bring charges against Israel, to bring covenant charges against them for uh, their, their covenant breaking and their idolatry. So Jesus is going to imitate, he's gonna follow and, and, and reco recapitulate both Moses and Elijah in his time in the wilderness Jesus fasts for 40 days, and then later he is going to go up another mountain and recast the covenant. He's going to preach God's law to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he's going to be raised up on another mountain and absorb all of the penalties for covenant breaking in his own body. So he's the greater Moses, he's the greater Elijah. He doesn't just deliver the law, he embodies the law. He obeys it perfectly. He doesn't only bring covenant charges against the people like Elijah did, he takes the curse of those, of those, uh, those law-breaking sin. He receives the penalty for those. So he's the greater Moses and the greater Elijah, even in this. The humanity of Jesus leaps off the page when we read, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Afterward, he was hungry. Of course he was hungry. You think, you think he wasn't hungry? Why are we told this? Why is Matthew sure to tell us, and afterward, he was hungry? Well, because Jesus is not this spirit being. Jesus is not this... Uh, this, this spirit who doesn't need to eat, who just kind of floats everywhere three inches off the ground so that he's not defiled by this filthy material world. Jesus was fully man. And the man Jesus suffered hunger and thirst and exhaustion and sorrow and physical pain and discomfort. When Jesus shared in our human existence, Jesus shared in all of our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to do without. He knows what it's like to say no to the flesh. And so he never asks you to do something he hasn't done himself. He knows what this is like. And he's not above hunger. He is starving here, and it's real. And when he's at his weakest, and when he's at his most vulnerable, that's when the tempter shows up. Satan is a cowardly, sniveling opportunist. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Satan's warfare on the bride and her seed, on the woman and her offspring. You see, Satan doesn't take on a full-on headfirst position against the man. When he can, he goes around the side. He, he, he sneaks around the corner to get at the woman and her offspring. Here, when he does strike at the king, he does so when he's physically weakened, when he's hungry, when he's starving, when he hasn't eaten for 40 days. There's a good lesson here. Know that when you are spent, when you are hungry, when you are ill or tired, or when you are at the end of your rope, or when you are under stress, 
you should expect to be tempted. You, you should be able to see it when it comes. Oh yes, I am drained. And yep, there it is. There is that temptation to not trust in God. There's this temptation to take a shortcut to comfort or to pleasure or to satisfaction. There, there it is. There is the allure of compromise. There's the idol right there. This is why we pray for you when you're sick and when you're grieving and when you're vulnerable in other ways and why you need to tell us when you're suffering. Don't keep it into yourself because you are vulnerable to the lies of Satan. And you need to let us share those burdens with you. You need to be open about it and say, I, I can't, I'm, I'm out. I can't do this on my own because it's in that moment of grief or hunger, or pain, or illness, where Satan is speaking lies in your ear. And you need somebody else to come alongside you and counter the lies of Satan. We get kind of frustrated when somebody's sick, or they've had a loss, or going through difficulty, and we think, well, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. You know what you say? You say the things that everybody already knows, but which that person needs to hear, that uh, Jesus is king, you think, oh, everybody knows that. Why do I, I, don't, I don't have the words. That's not innovative. That's not new. That's not interesting. No, you say it. You say Jesus is king. You tell them that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You say those things. You say it and you say it. You know why? Because the devil's in the other ear saying lies and you're speaking truth and they need to hear it. Even if it's the 10,000th time they've heard it, they need to hear it. Don't ever hesitate to say it. Because when we are under duress, when we are spent, is when we are vulnerable to the lies of Satan. We are tempted to despair. We are tempted to lose faith. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to indulge the lies of Satan. And it's there that Satan attacks Jesus. Now, notice that the first thing that Satan tempts the Lord Jesus with is food. How many temptations and how many conflicts in the Bible are around food and eating. There's the fruit in the garden. There's the, uh, the children of Israel crying out for meat and bread in the wilderness. There's all this strife in the New Testament about clean and unclean food. Why does this keep coming up? Why is the table that is supposed to be for communion and fellowship and festivity, why does it become a place of strife and anxiety and bitterness? Well, there's something underlying our need for food. Our, our, our physical need for food underscores our dependence, our contingency. We are all contingent on food. Our existence relies on food. I don't think any of you have solar panels installed, do you? I mean, none, none of you do photosynthesis, right? You don't absorb nutrients from the atmosphere. You eat. And because we all eat, we need food. We need something to come from outside of us because if we don't eat, we don't live. We are dependent upon food, which comes from the outside. Food is an important way that we take in the blessings of God. He satisfies our mouth with good things. He gives us good things to eat, and we give him thanks for this. But this means we are dependent upon him, and we are dependent upon a whole vast network of blessings that result in food coming to our plate. If you have a ham sandwich on your dinner table today, uh, if, if you eat a ham sandwich, just think about all of the processes that go into getting that simple, humble little ham sandwich to your plate. All the things that have to go right, the rain, soil, the sun, 
the handling of pests and weeds and disease, in the modern world, transportation and refrigeration, all that goes into a simple ham sandwich. And God delivers this to us for our life, and we give him praise for superintending all of these things to give us life. And, and it shows every single time you uh, put food in your mouth you are testifying to your dependence upon the goodness of God. Yes, he kept me alive for another day. That's why, children, you must always be thankful for your food. Mama, mama worked on it. Mama made it for you. Be thankful. I don't care you don't like it. Eat it. Be happy. Put a smile on your face. God gave it to you. Mama gave it to you. Be happy. You better tell her you're thankful. You better say thank you, mama, because God is good to us, and he gives us things to eat. So here, on the other hand, Satan's temptation is a shortcut. Satan's temptation is a thankless shortcut. Satan says to Jesus, you're hungry and you're the son of God, so just use your power to satisfy yourself, feed yourself, your needs, you deserve it. Now, this is the very same Jesus who's gonna turn a few loaves into enough bread to feed thousands. That was not impossible for Jesus to make himself bread. But Jesus responds to Satan, quoting from Deuteronomy, recalling Israel's time in the wilderness and how God humbled Israel by allowing her to go hungry before sending manna. Now, Jesus quotes a little part of it. I wanna read the full context of this quote where Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. I wanna grab from Deuteronomy chapter eight what's, what's said right before this. Moses is recalling, and he's calling Israel to remember their time of complaining about bread And he says this, you shall remember that Yahweh your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh. God says, I allowed you to hunger. That was by design. That was not something where I was asleep. I didn't ignore your needs. I didn't think, oh, they don't need to eat. No, God says, I allowed you to hunger so that you would know that your primary dependence is on me and my word before I sent you manna. God's not in the business of starving people. He's not in the business of of depriving us uh, endlessly. He's in the business of feeding people, even feeding people through miraculous processes as he did with the manna. But it's important to know that the God who feeds us is the God who speaks to us. Satan wants Jesus to obey Satan's agenda, Satan's suggestions, and yet use God's power to feed himself as if you can have it both ways, as if you can do what Satan says and enjoy God's good gifts, and as if that's a perfectly consistent position to take, and Jesus would not have it. It's not enough to simply exist, ignore God, and eat God's blessings. No, 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 no. It's way more important to do what God says, the food will come later. God will provide. You will not starve to death. But more important than anything, more important than breathing, more important than eating, more important than drinking water, is that we do what God says. That's the point. That's the most important thing. And so Jesus denies Satan the pleasure of making stones into bread just to satisfy this immediate need. It's much more important to obey God. And then in the second temptation, 
the devil takes Jesus into the holy city, Jerusalem, and he sets him up at the top of the temple and tempts Jesus to test the father's care for him by throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan even quotes scripture. He quotes uh, Psalm 91. He says, God will give his angels care over you. They shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. See, right there. Satan says, just jump, just jump. And the father will save you. What, you don't trust him? You don't think he'll save you? Now, I've always wondered, what is Satan's strategy here? It's very curious to me what he's trying to accomplish here. I wonder if Satan has a sense that there's going to be some kind of sacrifice that the Son of God is going to offer. And if so, can I get Jesus to do it my way, Satan is thinking. Can I get, can I get Jesus to do it this way on my schedule? In other words, what Satan is proposing is this. If you're going to die anyway, well, we can bypass all the shame, all the deprivation, all the torment, all the isolation. Here, we're at the temple. We're at the place of sacrifice. So you can just throw yourself off and you can die right now and see if God the Father accepts that sacrifice. Why don't we do it? Why don't we do it this way? The, the temptation here seems to be to force the Father's hand to see if Jesus can make an offer in his own way, on his own time, in a way that the Father can't refuse. Let's, let's back God into a corner in so many words. But you see, that's against the whole life and mission of Jesus. The, the life of Jesus is lived in submission to the Father. He lives to obey the Father. He prays, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is all about the will of his Father. Jesus is on the Father's schedule, the Father's program. And the Lord Jesus is gonna give himself up as a sacrifice only in the way that the Father ordains. So Jesus responds from Deuteronomy again. He quotes chapter 6, verse 16. This time, you shall not tempt Yahweh your God. What does it mean to tempt God? How can we tempt God? What does that mean? Well, it means that we try to put God in a corner and see if he's going to do what I want God to do no matter what I'm asking. I'm, I'm going to take a ridiculous risk and see if he'll save me. I'm going to sin knowingly, and I'm going to sin willingly, and just see, just see, will he forgive this? And just do this high-handed thing and see if he'll forgive it. You see, you don't ask God to prove that he's real by asking you to strike you with a lightning bolt or do some miraculous thing. You don't do that. God is not required to obey fools. God does not follow the word of fools. You don't put God on the spot by asking for something foolish or wicked. And, and so the context of this passage that Jesus is quoting is a time where Israel was testing God, where they were complaining about having no water. They were accusing God of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them. You brought us out of here and you're going to abandon us. You're going to let us starve to death and you're going to let us dry up. You're not going to give us water. You, you brought us out here to kill us. And that's when Moses said to Israel, he said, you are tempting God. They, they were putting God on the spot and they were saying, God, are you gonna do something about this or not? Are you real? In fact, a quote from that period of time, they say, is Yahweh among us or not? Now that's a very sarcastic way of asking, you know, God, if you're here, you would do something. If you're here, you would do something. But since you're not doing anything, you're either not here or you're not good. They were doubting God's faithfulness to them. Well, Jesus is not going to be tempted by Satan to chime in with Israel on this note. 
Jesus isn't going to act like God the Father is beholden to him. God is not obligated to do whatever you think he should do. And so Jesus is not going to just jump off the pinnacle just assuming that God is going to do what he wants him to do. Because God is not on your agenda, you are on his. And Jesus refuses to play Satan's game, and he doesn't jump off the temple. In the third temptation, Satan takes Jesus to an exceedingly tall mountain to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He promises to deliver all of that to Jesus if he would just bow down and worship Satan. Satan offers power, he offers honor, he offers authority. All is yours for the low, low, low price of just a little worship. Just bow the knee, just bow the knee to Satan and you can have all of this in an instant. There's no trial, there's no beating, there's no humiliation, there's no cross, there's no scars, there's no grave, no crown of thorns. All of this can be yours. Of course, now, if Jesus took that offer, if creation is under Jesus and Jesus is under Satan, then the kingdoms of this world are still under Satan. That's not a great deal. That's not a good, that's not a good plan. And so Jesus quotes scripture again. Can you guess what book Jesus quotes from? <laughs> he quoted from Deuteronomy the first time. He also quoted from Deuteronomy the second time. He quotes from Deuteronomy the third time. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship Yahweh your God and him only you shall serve. That's just the first commandment. Jesus quotes the first commandment. God the Son has no other options than to worship his Father. If Jesus bows down and worships Satan, that's just going to repeat the sin of the first Adam. And now all of creation is going to be enslaved under Satan's dominion even further. Jesus came to pull the kingdoms out from under Satan and to establish his own perfect rule of justice and peace. So the answer to Satan's offer is no. No, no, no. These three temptations grow in intensity. Each one grows in intensity. We go from a temptation about physical hunger to a temptation to test God rather than humbly obey him to a temptation to receive the kingdoms of the earth. We go from a desert to the top of the temple to the top of the world. Now, Jesus is going to go to the top of several mountains. He's going to go to the top of a mountain to preach in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to go up a mountain to die. He's going to ascend up a mountain before he ascends to the Father. And, and when we get to the final chapter of Matthew, Matthew 28, Jesus has received all authority in heaven and earth at the end of Matthew's gospel. But that comes not by bowing down to Satan. That authority and that glory and that honor comes by obeying his father to the death, even the death of the cross. All of Satan's plots and all of his offerings are just counterfeits of the true thing. And this is true of most of what Satan offers. It may be good, comfort, pleasure, food, money, power, influence, honor. These, these are all things that can be used in very good ways. They may be good, but the temptation of Satan is to get those things in an idolatrous way, to, to go a way that doesn't please God, to break God's law, to get a good thing. And that is where we fall. And that's where we fall into temptation. Jesus avoids that. So out here in the wilderness, Jesus has faced the very same series of temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. That's why Jesus has this great repository of texts with which to respond to Satan. 
he can pull all of this out of Deuteronomy because this has all happened before. Israel complained about bread and God gave them bread in the wilderness, but he taught them to live on and trust his word. Israel complained and they tested the Lord. They asked him, are you really with us? Are you protecting us or have you forgotten us? Prove yourself, God. And God responded by telling them, don't, don't tempt me or you're gonna get more of me than you can handle. And then when, when Israel was waiting at the foot of the mountain for Moses to come back down the mountain, they constructed a golden calf to worship. They added full-blown idolatry to their repertoire of rebellion. And so in the book of Exodus, Israel passes through the water of the Red Sea. They go out to the wilderness. They complain about bread. They test God. They worship Satan. And now Jesus has gone through the waters of baptism, he's gone out to the wilderness, and he's faced with the exact same three temptations in the same order. And in each one, Jesus beats down Satan one right after another in each event. He trusts God for his bread, he refuses to test God, and he does not give in to idolatry. He doesn't simply avoid disobedience where Israel disobeyed, he's faithful where Israel is unfaithful. He keeps the fast instead of complaining about bread. He trusts God rather than tempting him. He repeats the word of his father over and over and over. He obeys and worships his father alone and refuses to worship Satan. At every turn, the Lord Jesus shows us what obedience looks like. He is our champion going up against Satan. He demonstrates how we fight and how we win our battles against Satan. Because we're tempted in the very same way that Israel was. We're tempted in the same ways that Jesus was to complain. We're tempted to test God. We're tempted to worship idols. The only way we defeat Satan is by following Jesus' example. It's critical we get this because this is going to happen. You will be tempted. The Spirit will often lead us into the wilderness, into the arena of testing, where he will put you in uncomfortable circumstances. He'll put you in situations where you don't have your footing, where the things that you normally rely on aren't there. He puts pressure on us. He makes us hunger and thirst. He introduces uncertainty about our future, uncertainty about our job, our health, our finances. He tests our relationships, our children, our marriages. The Spirit makes us wait for things longer than we want to wait. He allows accusers and dangers and all kinds of complicated situations to enter our lives. He pulls us out into the wilderness because it's out there in the wilderness where our hearts are laid open, our motives are revealed, where we are asked hard questions and must come up with answers. Hard questions like, what is it exactly that you worship? What is it that you want? What are you hoping for? What do you depend on? Whose words are you listening to? The Spirit does this to us. He brings us out here into the wilderness, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He loved Israel and brought them out to the wilderness so that, as he said in Deuteronomy 8.2, so that he might humble you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. That was the purpose of Israel going out to the wilderness. And so in the same way, the Father and the Spirit loved Jesus. The Father was well pleased with Jesus and brought him out to the wilderness to reveal, will he obey? Is he a faithful son? Who does he love? What is his heart set upon? 
Will he follow the word of his father or will he follow the word of Satan? God did this for Israel. God did this for Jesus and he does it for us. Not because he's trying to trip us up, not to watch us fall into disaster or to seduce us to commit sin. Why does he do this? Well, this is how he strengthens us for war. This is how we grow in faith. This is how we grow to hope in God. This is how we are prepared for bigger tests, for more intense battles. Be faithful here, obey God here, and level up for the next struggle. Pass the test, and you get a bigger foe to fight. We succeed in our warfare against Satan only by following Jesus' example. And just for a couple of minutes, what do we learn from Jesus' example here? First of all, first, we notice that Satan's chief weapons are lies. In fact, that's pretty much all he has in his arsenal. Satan, as a child of God, he cannot physically attack you. He can't possess you and make you do bad things. If you've watched you know, uh, terrible, scary movies or, or horror films and you think spirits can possess you and and, 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 and make you do weird stuff. You know, you've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. you, you uh, an evil spirit is not gonna indwell you. He can't break stuff. He can't do physical harm. All he does is lie. That's his weapon, lies. And in the moment of temptation, when you are presented with an opportunity to disobey God, understand that that call to disobedience a call to disobedience is grounded in a lie. The thing that you want more than obeying God is all based in a lie. The lie that that thing is gonna bring you happiness or comfort or peace or pleasure. It's the lie that something else can satisfy you more than obeying God. That something else can feed you, protect you. Something other than God can save you. It's all a lie. And so our defense is the truth. That's our defense. Just speak the truth. We don't enter into a dialogue with Satan the way that Eve did. Even Jesus doesn't argue with Satan. Jesus could mow Satan down with argument, and Jesus doesn't even enter into an argument with him uh, because he's our example. He doesn't want us to argue with Satan because that argument is how you begin to entertain lies. You start to entertain terrible ideas when you argue with him. And you start to think, well, did God really say? Or did God really, really, really mean that? Or does that section of the Bible even apply anymore? I mean, it's, it's the 90s. That's what we used to say. It's the 2022. Uh, it's, it's the time now that, that there's a different standard. There's something else. Does God's word really mean anything to this situation? All of those arguments are trapped. And let me tell you, in the heat of temptation, is not the time to start doing higher textual criticism of God's word. In the heat of temptation is not the time to start creating all kinds of theological sophistry. Because in the heat of temptation, your heart is a terrible theologian. Your heart is a bad exegete of scripture, which is why we must cling to, thus saith the Lord, the plain black and white reading of God's word. It's why he gives us 10 commandments that are so easy to memorize and so easy to know, to hide them in our heart and to speak truth to temptation when it comes. And so this is what Jesus does. Jesus speaks the truth. He doesn't argue, he doesn't debate, he doesn't entertain a single thought that Satan gives him. 
He has his father's word hidden in his heart. He can quote it. He speaks truth to the lies. Don't argue with it. Don't debate it. Don't entertain it. Don't try to get around behind it and try to convince yourself that the thing that, God's hate, that, the thing that God hates is really okay. If you just squint right and just kind of look at it just on this angle, it's kind of okay. Don't do that. Don't debate it. Don't defend it. Don't join the devil on his playing field. Shut it down and stop it with the truth. And here's the authority and here's the power you have in Christ. Child of God, Jesus says in verse 10, away with you, Satan. Did you read verse 11? Then the devil left him. That's a great truth. How much hope and how much comfort is there in that for you? Satan does not hang around forever. You can outlast Satan. James says in his epistle, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. One of Satan's greatest lies is that the only way to make him go away is to give in to what he wants. And if you believe that, then you just won't even put up a fight. You just fold and surrender every time. But Jesus shows the opposite, that if you resist him, if you speak truth, if you put up a fight, if you speak truth against his lies, he goes away. I don't know what you all are struggling with right now, individually. I don't know your greatest disappointments with yourself. I don't know where in your life you know you are not pleasing to the Lord, where you know you are destroying yourself and you're wasting opportunities and you're destroying relationships and you're wasting God's good gifts, and you keep doing it, and you keep it up over and over. And every Lord's Day, when we confess our sins together in worship, that struggle, that defeat is on your mind. It's ever-present in your life and in your heart. I don't know what that is, and so I'm not even gonna try to address each one of those possibilities individually. I don't know, but you know, you know what I'm talking about because you have it in your head and your heart right now. I don't know what that is, but I do know what God's word says about this. You've heard this before, but you need to hear it again. From 1 Corinthians chapter 10, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God never, 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 never puts you in a position where the only way out of it is to sin. God never, never, never gives you a situation in life where you cannot be pleasing to him, where you cannot obey him. Every temptation has a way of escape. Every temptation, every trial, every testing has a way out. And every time Satan shows up with his lies, you can resist him because of the faithfulness and sinlessness of Jesus. Satan has been beaten down under our feet. And so you can resist Satan. You can speak truth to his lies, knowing that he will flee. And each time you grow stronger in the Lord and in his spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for this. We ask that you would drive home this example from our Savior's life, 
that we would take great hope and great consolation in this, that you are with us, that our Lord has gone with us through the valley of temptation. He's been in the wilderness and he knows what it's like. And so we ask for his strength and your spirit to stand with us in the hour of temptation. And we pray that as we speak truth, that Satan would flee swiftly, that he would flee speedily. Protect us, protect our children, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.